Flow is an elusive state where time seems to dissolve and we're fully immersed in the present moment. Join me, Sonia Looney, in this deep dive into the world of flow with the remarkable Dr. Oren Davis, a luminary in positive psychology and the first recipient of a doctorate in the field. In this episode, he guides us through the complexities of what flow really means and how we can incorporate it in our lives, both personally and professionally. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. Deeply focused experiences often lead to higher performance anyway. Like over and above the challenge, skill balance, all the rest of that stuff, when we're deeply focused on something, we do better. And people often feel really good about the fact that they've done better. And when we're deeply focused, we can often access greater skills so we can go for greater challenge. That's not quite a flow experience, but people often conflate it with one because we feel good afterwards and we were highly focused and you know there was challenge and there was a high level of skill it's not quite the same thing and i think that the main differentiator has to do with the intrinsic motivation and when people are talking about a flow state what they're really talking about is the absorptive aspect of it when you're just highly focused and you're in that sort of trance when you're just totally absorbed in the activity very much part of flow experiences but I would argue that flow is more than that. Chicks let me I point out that flow is more than that. I'm really excited about today's episode because flow has been very popularized and a lot of times it is misrepresented. So I wanted to get into it with an expert in flow. In fact, Dr. Oren Davis studied under Mihai Chixent Mihai. So we are in for a treat with his level of expertise. Oren crafts a definition that demystifies flow highlighting its fusion of action and consciousness. We explore why individuals seek flow and its stark differences from engagement, competition, and creativity. Flow is often analogous with optimal experiences where we are highly focused with a high level of skill and challenge level. This allows us to get lost in the activity, to feel in control of the situation, and do something that we are intrinsically motivated to do. And in fact, research shows that our sense of self is stronger once we emerge from a flow state. Flow experiences often leave us feeling a sense of joy, progress, and accomplishment afterwards. He noted that people tend to remember specific flow experiences from long ago, even decades prior. And these high points stay with us and can reinforce our intrinsic motivation to do things for their own sake. Oren also mentioned that flow experiences can enhance our feelings of competence and reinforce our sense of self through pushing our skills to a higher level of mastery. I learned from Oren that there are many misconceptions about flow that have arisen from definitions in older research papers from the 1970s to 1990s that may not reflect what Csikszentmihalyi's latest thinking was. He emphasized that you cannot simply trigger a flow state by following a checklist, as some of the popular literature sometimes suggests. One thing that was surprising that Oren said about the flow experiences was that neuroscience is not currently advanced enough to analyze or measure flow in the brain. He said that while there have been some incremental findings, the technology is not there yet and we don't fully understand the brain or flow well enough 
to make definitive claims about what's happening neurologically during a flow state. We also differentiated between a focused state and a flow experience. We also talked about building team flow, which I will be recording a follow-up episode in the future with an expert on team flow. We also talked about how to cultivate flow in your own life by understanding more about what flow is and why feedback and what you're doing is so crucial. Flow is a big part of positive psychology and I am having so much fun in my second semester in my master's. This is really the A in MAP, the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. So I am acquiring so many important skills on not only the theory of positive psychology, the science of well-being, things like optimism, grit, resilience, character strengths, mattering, and so much more, but I'm learning how to apply them in multiple contexts. I'm learning how to apply them in institutions. I'm learning how to create workshops. I am learning how to teach. And these are all really wonderful skills to increase what I'm already doing. And I'm so excited about what I'll be offering after I am done with MAP. Back in 2021, I think, I created something called the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, which was basically everything I knew at the time about positive psychology and sports psychology and created a course. It is an asynchronous course, so that means you can take it at your own leisure, and it covers a lot of important topics on how to perform your best. Your mind can be your greatest ally, and optimism is something you can train. Resilience is a skill that can be cultivated, and there is so much more. When the going gets tough, it's your mind that gets you to the finish line. So if you want to know all the things that I've been using over the years in my racing career and a lot of evidence-backed strategies when it comes to goal setting and confidence and self-talk, go to sonyalooney.com, click on courses and coaching. You'll find Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy there. You can also go to moxieandgrit.com. That is M-O-X-Y and grit.com. That's my apparel company. And you can also find my course there. If you're enjoying the show, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as that will help the show find others. We have incredible guests coming on the show like Dr. Oren Davis and many others. And your comments, reviews, and shares on social media, give them extra stoke in the work they're doing. And it also helps us be more excited about the work we're doing here. And of course, we are very excited about the work we're doing here. As I learned from one of my mentors this week, Andrew Soren, doing meaningful work has four quadrants and doing work in service of others is what one of the things that creates a lot of meaning. And I'm so grateful that I've been doing this podcast for almost seven years in service of others and that I continue to derive a lot of meaning and joy from the process. Okay, so let's dive right in with Dr. Oren Davis. Oren, it's been so fun to develop a friendship with you through lots of different conversations before jumping on this podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Very much a pleasure. So um, I am very excited to talk to you because you're an expert on flow. And as we've discussed, there is a lot of confused people out there about flow. So can you first define flow for us? I think we're all confused about flow. <laughs> it's a tough topic. So I think I think the way that I would define flow is that flow is what we would call the optimal experience. So it's a broader experience in which we're highly focused. We're applying high level of skill relative to our own average level to something that we consider challenging that allows us to get lost in the activity, feel like we're in control of the situation, and it's something that we're intrinsically motivated to do. Okay, so I'm going to 
um, read to you what came out of Csikszentmihalyi's book, who you were his student, his right? Mm-hmm. You were, um, characterized, flow is characterized by merging of action and awareness, a sense of control, high concentration, loss of self-consciousness and transformation of time. So that is one, that's one definition from mm-hmm. one of his books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've, since I've read the mod, I don't remember which ones, which definitions in which book, mm-hmm. but w- one challenge we run into is that, um, Csikszentmihalyi's books didn't always match his thinking. And it's funny because it's a conversation that he and I had, I think, my second or third year of grad school um, that, you know, what's in his books is sort of like what he was thinking at the time. And he was one of those people that was always updating his thinking. And so we would talk about something and I'd mentioned something from the book. He'd, he'd basically say the equivalent of not his language, but he'd say something that's the equivalent of, oh, that was so 2005. Mm-hmm. Like, that's yeah, that's- what, yeah, that's what I was thinking when I wrote it, but that's not what I'm thinking now. And he was he was way beyond, you know, his thinking was way beyond what was in his books. And that was probably one of the coolest parts about being his grad student was I was getting really like his latest thinking really where he was at. And these definitions have evolved over the years. So it's, it's actually ironically, you know, you and I were talking earlier about some of the misconceptions about flow. You see people that are quoting from like 1975, 1990. I'm not saying don't do that, but like, that's not the latest thinking. Yeah. And that's actually a a general question that I have because I've written a lot of research papers in the last several months. And I'll notice when the paper was written and I wonder to myself, you know, has this been updated and I just haven't found the updated paper or maybe that there hasn't been funding to do the research to show that this has been updated. So like, how can people um, have an idea if they are citing or quoting updated research or not? So, I mean, this is just a general research question. I always recommend, you know, digging through Google Scholar a little bit or, you know, one of the other uh, reference sites, um, you know, just one of the psychology search engines. There are a couple that are mm-hmm. out there. But yeah, just to just take a look and see what's uh, see what may have been. Um, any major researchers in that zone, check the website. <clears throat> a lot of us uh, put our papers on our websites or at least, you know, our CVs or something like that. So you can see what's out there. <clears throat> so you mentioned... You mentioned like high skill and challenge. So in flow, some of the questions that come up is, you know, is it a skill challenge match? If if you need the challenge to be a little bit more than skill or vice versa, like around what is that um, relationship between skill and challenge? So I think part of what it is, people like numbers and people like quantifying things. And I think that one of the things that we run into is because we've got that desire to quantify, we try to, uh, a lot of, the, there's a lot of emphasis on the challenge skill part, because those are things that are much easier to measure. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, and when we've done the measurements, like Abu Amda and Csikszentmihalyi, one of their papers on chess, like flow in chess, was pointing out that actually you want challenge to be slightly higher than skill level. But I mean, the long and the short of it is you want something that you're going to have to struggle to get. It's not it's not something that you can just grasp easily. It's got to be something that you're going to have to work for. And you're really going to have to put forth a, a lot of effort to get to. And has it been measured um, in the brain or is it is it based on self-questionnaire, self-reporting? I'm going to start with the second part. It's <laughs> always measured as a self-report. Um when you say, has it been measured in the brain? Um, 
I'm going to say absolutely not, but there are a whole lot of neuroscientists that I totally just defended right now. Um, what I would point out is that in my opinion and a lot of other opinions, uh, neuroscience is not up to the challenge yet of analyzing flow or very much else yet. The technology isn't there. We don't understand enough about the brain. And we also don't understand enough about flow. So like, we don't know a lot about the brain and we really don't know a lot about flow. And so this is like, you know, two blind spots overlapping, which just means we're really, we're really way out of any zone where we can make definitive pronouncements. That said, um, there's been some progress in trying to understand this. The progress has been incremental. We've gotten some hints, but what I would argue is that the absolute most robust findings that we found thus far in neuroscience um, probably aren't much more than hints. Okay. And I also forgot to ask this question. Like for us, it seems obvious, but maybe for someone listening, they've never heard of flow before. Like why would we want to be in a flow state? So I generally refer to them as flow experiences more than states, probably a question we'll get to later. Mm -hmm. But uh, why flow experiences? Often because the way that we feel afterwards is probably one of, it's unique experience. It's an ineffable experience. And it's one of those high points you know, that you can experience sometimes even in life or in a day or in a week, a month, a year. But I can tell you that I, I think about some of the flow experiences that I've had in my life, and I can still remember them. Even flow experiences from, let's say, 30 years ago, I remember those. They they stay with us as major high points. We feel great about them, and that can often reinforce our feelings of intrinsic motivation, the idea that we want to do something for its own sake. So for instance, um, the full experience I was talking about 30 years ago, I used to skate. I was a figure skater. I loved it. And the feeling of being, you know, on the floor was fantastic. Like skating had a fantastic feeling. And the flow experiences that I had when I was doing challenging moves and succeeding at them and, you know, putting and succeeding at them because I put forth an unusual effort and I really nailed something that, you know, meant a lot to me that I was really trying to get to. You remember that it stays with you and it sort of it also sort of reinforces the love of skating and it makes you want to try for new heights. So for all of those reasons, it's the high performance. It's a reminder of the joy of the experience. It's what encourages us to want to do more, do better. So across all those reasons, we love flow experiences. I also want to ask you something about um, the, about Csikszentmihalyi's book. Um, in his book, and you can tell me if this has been updated or his thinking has changed or had had changed on this. Is he said your sense of self emerges as a stronger sense of self through differentiation and integration. Um, I'm different because of the things that I'm able to do, but I'm also connected um, because of all these different things. So, can you talk more about that? Absolutely. So differentiation, integration, very old concept. Um, Csikszentmihalyi borrowed it from biology. He was uh, very much a multidisciplinary person. So he grabbed from a lot of things. And uh, funnily enough, differentiation, integration, also something that Fredrickson was talking about in the broad and build theory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, absolutely flow can play a major role in the differentiation and the integration that we, that flow, our flow experiences help us understand how and why we're unique. Um, and also that allow us to, let's say, hit new levels of mastery that we then integrate into ourselves that become part of our identity. We're using our uniqueness. And often, you know, when we're using our skills in the, at these high levels, that's often 
putting a stamp of our uniqueness on the activities that we're engaged in. Mm-hmm. And that also feels amazing because we're we're putting ourselves into it literally. So in the mass media, you know, there's books on flow and people talking about, you know, I'm your flow coach or here's all these, here's this checklist that you can do to get into flow. Um, it seems to me that that is not like you can't just make a checklist and now you're in flow. Can you talk more about like how people can experience flow in their lives? If it is something you can just, you know, cultivate and then start experiencing more flow. So I think a holy grail for a lot of us in flow research is finding some kind of intervention that would promote more flow experiences, either better ones or more frequent ones. No one's found one yet. Um, I'm one of the people who's working on it. I've spoken with a lot of scientists, a lot of the researchers in the field. We've all got some ideas, but no one's put out anything that's reliable in part because, you know, again, you're grab you're drawing on people's uniqueness here and you're drawing on circumstances, you're drawing on context, something that my dissertation work, even, you know, from 15 years ago or so, one of the things that we noticed was the context matters and trying to come up with an algorithm that fits all the contextual pieces. It's a no go so far. I've come up with a couple things, but those, those are very broad preliminary things. I'm still building on it. Others are also building on it, coming up with their own um, systems for that. But right now we're still, we're still trying to pin down what flow is and what the experience is and how it is and why it works and what's going on. So we're, we're a little fuzzy on all that still, uh, even though, you know, flow has been around for uh, going on almost uh, 60 years soon enough. So there's a lot to figure out still. What I would say is there are a lot of misconceptions about flow, mostly because it's got so many moving parts and people aren't clear on which parts are the key. So a lot of what people talk about is the deeply focused experience. And what I'll point out is deeply focused experiences often lead to higher performance anyway. Like over and above the challenge, skill balance, all the rest of that stuff, when we're deeply focused on something, we do better. And people often feel really good about the fact that they've done better. And when we're deeply focused, we can often access greater skills so we can go for greater challenge. That's not quite a flow experience, but people often conflate it with one because we feel good afterwards. And we were highly focused and, you know, there was challenge and there was high level of skill. It's not quite the same thing. And I think that the main differentiator has to do with the intrinsic motivation. We're not always factoring that in. And that's that's kind of the it's one of the for lack of a better term, it's one of the fudge factors. It's not getting included a lot in the popular literature. They're, t- they're not often including that piece. And they're focusing mostly on the, the state aspect of flow. And, and so one of the things I was saying before, why I call flow an experience rather than a state is because the state aspect of it is necessary but not sufficient. When people are talking about a flow state, what they're really talking about is the absorptive aspect of it. When you're just highly focused and you're in that sort of trance, when you're just totally absorbed in the activity, uh, very much part of flow experiences, but I would argue that flow, flow is more than that. Chicks at me, I point out that flow is more than that. And because it's more than that, you can't just think of it, you can't reduce flow to this highly focused situation and some of the consequences that come out of it. But we're seeing in the popular media, it's reducing to that. And when you think about it that way, then you can borrow from the meditation literature, the hypnosis literature, the idea of doing things like 
quote unquote, triggering flow. No, you can't do that because you can't trigger the intrinsic motivation part. You can't trigger the desire to do something for its own sake. But what you can do is you can trigger people to go into that highly focused state. I mean, post-hypnotic suggestions and say this, you know, practiced meditators, you know, can often, you know, drop into their meditative experience and their meditative state much faster. And so people talk about like flow coaches coaching you how to get into the flow state. No, you get into the absorptive state, yes. But flow is emergent. And the research on flow shows that flow emerges as part of a greater experience. Now, there are those who are, you know, very, very well versed in psychological states and would argue that I'm that I'm mincing words that that you know flow is more of a psychological state. But they're using psychological state in the same way that I'm using experience. And they don't mean state like trance state, which is how the popular media is using it. And so part of this is that the word state can imply a whole bunch of things. And it's got a more slippery meaning. And some people haven't really gotten what psychologists mean by a state. And here, it would be something that is like a broader experience, like a temporary thing, because flow is temporary. You can't stay in flow all day. So this, let's say you're in flow for an hour, that in psychology, we might call that a state experience, so to speak, but it's not, but that's not what people are talking about when they say, oh, you can jump into a flow state. They're talking about a trance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was actually something that I wanted to ask you about is differentiating engagement versus flow, because a lot of times people will think that they're in a flow state if they are immersed in what they're doing or like they're writing something and they're like, oh, it's coming so easily. And, but they're also like, feel really good afterwards and and they're not as self-conscious about the work they're doing it just flowing through them they think that that is a state of flow or a state quote of flow Mm -hmm. when really that's not flow that's just a deeply immersed mindfully even mindfully aware experience Mm -hmm. so how can somebody differentiate and know like well was that a state of engagement or was that a state of flow or a experience of flow, sorry. <laughs> Any way you want to look at it. I think I think what I would point out is there there are a couple differentiators, but again, I would I would argue that, you know, at this point when we're talking about differentiators, I'm not sure that anybody at this point has the hard and fast, it's definitely like this or it's mm-hmm. definitely like that. I would say that how we feel about the activity and our desire to do the activity is one of the differentiators. This is what I was saying about intrinsic motivation. So for instance, you know, when I when I was skating or, you know, I'm also a dancer, I like dancing. I want to be in it. I want to be doing the activity. Success or failure is often out of the equation. And that's one of the indicators that, you know, we're experiencing flow more than, you know, experiencing engagement. Often when we're looking at engagement, success or failure, like the, the result of that outcome is more important to us. Now, you know, obviously when I'm, when I'm dancing, when I'm skating or I play volleyball, you know, when I play volleyball, like, look, I'm playing the win. I want to win, but whether I win or lose is not part of it because I'm intrinsically motivated to play. I want to play. And for me, I feel good because I was in the game and I played well and, you know, win, lose. That's not, that's not the point. It's did I play to win? Did I play well? Did I put my best efforts in there? You know, and was I challenged? You know, was I was I having to put forth my best efforts? But it's the fact that I just want to be in the game. I just want to play. I want to be out there on the court. I want to I want to be in the rallies. I, I want good rallies. And like that's what I'm really going for. And so for the example you give that when we're writing, I, I love to write also. 
I haven't had as much flow in writing, um, admittedly. I've had more of the engagement states. And part of that is, I think that the way I felt about the process afterwards made the difference. Like, okay, that might have been a good writing session. I did some good writing there. And I feel good about it. But I'm not thinking like, I loved the process of doing that writing. I was I was having so much fun in the writing. It, it, it the act of writing felt so good to me that I just wanted to be writing. I was very goal oriented with that writing. I wanted to finish this piece, and if I had if I had uh, finished the experience without finishing the piece, I might have actually been ticked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're not writing to write. You're writing to learn, or you're writing to convey an idea to teach somebody something. It's not just to write. Yeah. I want this. I want this done. Mm-hmm. And and when it's so heavily goal oriented, it's like one of the things that we, that we talk about in the flow research is we know fear of failure. We're not worried about failing. We don't, we don't care if we fail. We just want to be doing it. When I'm writing, I care if I fail. I care very much if I fail. Whereas when I'm playing volleyball, like, look, if I play, if I play my game, I play my best game and I lose, it's like, that was fun. Like I'm walking off the court. I'm smiling. I am I am having fun. This was great. And you know, sometimes by the way, the opposite, like, you know, I'll I'll win the game. And it's like, that was a lousy, that was a lousy game. That wasn't fun. And I, I walk off the court disappointed despite having won because it didn't feel like a good game. I love this. <laughs> Number one, I've I've won bike races and felt very dissatisfied with the win. And I felt like I didn't deserve to win because I didn't perform in a certain way. I didn't perform at what I felt was my potential and I didn't have fun. And this like makes me ask a question about competition because in competitive environments, can you truly only be intrinsically motivated to be there? Because the pressure of the competition does help it creates more challenge than you normally would have had. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have to raise your skill level in order to overcome those challenges. Can it truly be only intrinsically motivated? It can be. That doesn't mean it will be. And some of it is, is it's what you turn it into. And do you take that competitive, do you internalize that competitive environment and make it about winning? Or do you internalize that competitive environment and say, I want to do my best. And then it's like, look, I'm, when when you make when you take the competition and say okay this is giving me a bar now i want to see how far i can go then it is then it can become a flow experience and it can actually be conducive to flow but when it, so it's all about whether the goal is your performance like performing at your best or whether the outcome matters to you can you care about the outcome but have performance goals and that's what you're evaluating yourself on well, the outcome is there to help give you the goal. So one of the, one of the characteristics of flow is that you have a clear goal, and having a clear goal every step of the way, often the outcome is that goal. So, for example, like when I'm playing volleyball, I'm playing to win. I'm absolutely playing to win, and that is that is my clear goal. But that's just something I'm working towards. It's not whether I achieve that goal, not achieve that goal. It's more to help me focus. It's more to help me know. Uh, how to apply the skills and one of the other aspects of flow is the feedback getting getting consistent feedback to know whether you're doing it right and that goal and that feedback work together and often you know competition can help us with that because it's giving us the goal and the feedback you know if you're in a bike race for example you've got all the other bikers there so that's feedback you've got you know the the finish line and that's that's a goal 
and the bikers around you and how far you are from the finish line. These are, this is all like a goal feedback system that helps guide your performance. And it tells you like, okay, if all the bikers are pulling ahead of you, like you better step it up or you're, or you better be pacing yourself properly so that you can really push it at the end, you know, part of your strategy, whatever it is, but that it's giving you that it's giving you some guidance on how to perform. And that's what it's there for. And if you're using it that way, then it can be very much conducive to flow because the competition is giving you feedback. Your competitors are giving you feedback about what level of performance you might be giving at that moment. Now it is relative, but also like how good's your strategy? Is it working? Is it getting you where you want to go? Something like that. Yeah, it's kind of like having the outcome in mind is the flow is the the current in the river, right? Like that's gonna direct you when you're in the river, but how you choose to act when you're in the river, how you're going to swim or paddle or whatever it is you're doing, like that is the the process goals. In a sense, yeah. So what what did I get in a sense? So what did I get wrong? So I, I'm not sure if it's the current in the river as much as well, the current in the river is more feedback, I would argue, than than the goal, because usually mm. you're you're trying to get somewhere. But current gives you an idea of like where things are going and it helps mm-hmm. you get the lay of the land. But where you need to go may be actually against the current, it may be with the current, mm-hmm. it may be across the current. So it's just a goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, sorry, it's just feedback. And then you have to use that as part of your environment relative to your goal. So I also think I'm I'm just pushing back a little bit too, because like I think that you can yeah, be doing it. work with intrinsic motivation and be in a state of engagement, but not experience flow. Like you because on the motivation continuum, you can have like that autonomous, like you can have an autonomous form of motivation, but that's not exactly the same thing as intrinsic motivation. Like I'm doing something because I want an outcome, but I truly love the thing that I'm doing. Um, But there's an outcome that I'm reaching for that I want versus I'm doing this thing because I just love this thing. So I I think you answered your own question there. It's that (laughs) when, when, when we love the outcome, when we're so focused on the outcome, that often detracts from the flow experience. So how do people detach from the outcome? Sometimes we can't, we don't, and we shouldn't. So I, I would argue that in a lot of cases that like it's not always worth sacrificing the outcome for the flow experience. And like one of the things about flow is that, and this is another thing that's often you know misunderstood in the literature, flow is hard to do, and it's hard to achieve, and it's hard to experience, and consequently, it's not something that happens all day, every day. It's a rare experience, in part because for a lot of the things that we do or that we need to do, the outcome's going to matter a lot. And we are very focused on that outcome, and we need that high outcome, or we need a good outcome. So being able to divorce the outcome, the quality of the outcome from what we're trying to do, not always so easy, not always so possible. Now, I will point out, we can still have flow experiences when the outcome matters. But in those cases, we're focused less on the outcome, we're focused more on the process. And often it can be very difficult for the context. Let's say, for example, when you're when you're doing when you're having experiences at work and you you need to produce good work. And you know, there's often pressure from bosses, clients, company, whatever, that the work you produce has to be good. And that can make it harder to have a flow experience. If you can, however, just say, I want to do my best at this work. And I'm not worried about what the outcome is going to be. I feel like if I do my best, it will, whatever I get will be good enough. 
And if it's not a good outcome, that's going to be okay. And it's very hard to get to that point, especially to get your bosses or the company or the clients to say, if this is not a good outcome, that's going to be okay. Sometimes it's the fact that this is a really difficult thing. And what, and especially in the world of knowledge work, it's, it's never definitive. It's not always good. We, we do our best. And sometimes even when we do our best, it's not going to be the best outcome. May not even be a good outcome sometimes. Sometimes that is impossible. Sometimes we, you know, misapprehended pieces of the situation or the work or the task or something along those lines. So because of that, I would say that our flow experiences when the outcome matters only going to happen if we can focus on the process and let go of how much we need to control the fact that the outcome must be good. I'm going to make this even more complicated. (laughs) So a lot of times when people are trying to achieve a certain outcome, and you and I were actually kind of talking about this, it's because they want to feel like they are enough, like they have not separated themselves from the work. So like this work might not be up to snuff, but I am I am good enough and I did my best work, even though the work itself might not be up to whatever somebody else's expectations may be. So I'm wondering if somebody is has differentiated themselves from the work a little bit more, if that actually helps them be in higher states of engagement or experience more flow in their lives. I would say yes, actually. And, and that. I think it's about wanting to do your own best and to bring your uniqueness into it. And the more we can bring our unique combination of skill and insight and experience and draw on that to, for lack of a better term, play our game, mm-hmm. I think the more likely it is that we can experience flow. And, uh, you know, uh, the play our game is actually uh, something I drew from my volleyball coach back in high school, uh, Melinda Udell. She always used to remind us, you know, play your game. You know, the, our opponents may be trying to draw us into a game that's not ours or into a style of a game that's not ours. And she kept on reminding us, play your game. We have our style of playing. It's what we practice. It's what works for us. Let's not get drawn by context or by demand characteristics into, you know, this other, th- this thing that's not us. That's so interesting. One of the the mantras I have for myself and that my coaching clients use is ride your own race because it's so easy to get caught up in what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And especially in the workplace, we can get caught up in what our bosses think or what the client's going to think or all mm-hmm. the rest of that stuff. And it's like, at the end of the day, we need to provide our best work and outcome. We have to remember that the quality of the outcome or the evaluation of the outcome is not entirely contingent upon us anyway. And that's like more than anything else, that's a very hard thing to remember that the quality of the outcome is not entirely contingent upon us. We can produce what we believe is a great outcome and then we give it to somebody else and they go, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I had no way, and you look at it objectively, like I had no way to see that reaction coming. And, you know, or maybe there were, you know, multiple clues. And in retrospect, these clues are more important than those clues. But I didn't know that at the time and and so on. And, you know, sometimes people's reactions to things are more about them than they are about you. You know, you you make something great and then somebody else doesn't like it. That may not be about you. That may be about them. We don't always think about it that way. We often think like if somebody doesn't like it, well, that that, that means that we did a bad job. 
maybe maybe they just don't like it. Maybe this is about them. Maybe it's their taste, their situation, whatever it is. And we forget that there are factors that are entirely out of our control. And it's hard to let go of those. Because we do want to think that we can that we can control whether something turns out to be good or not. And we forget that we can't always do that. Can we bring creativity into the mix here? Because it sounds like when somebody is doing their best work, it creates an environment for creativity. Whereas if there is a lot of external pressures and concerns about evaluation, it's harder to be creative. Harder, but not impossible. So and, and something that Csikszentmihalyi also discussed, you know, Csikszentmihalyi was a creativity researcher at his, at his core. You know, he was Jack, uh, it was Jack Etzel's grad student and that's, you know, creativity, problem solving, problem finding, things along those lines. It's actually how Csikszentmihalyi stumbled upon flow was he was doing an analysis of problem solving and problem finding under Jack Etzel. So uh, creativity, totally fair game here. And yes, you know, when we're having flow experiences, we are more likely to be bringing forth our uniqueness, and therefore that will often yield part of the novelty that's necessary. But then having the clear goals and having the feedback is often what helps us bring in the usefulness. So Teresa Mabila's definition of creativity is both the novel and the useful. And I think that flow interacts with it well, because when we're bringing forth our uniqueness, when we're applying our skills at the above average level, we're probably adding a level of novelty to it. But then when, we, when we're focusing on clear goals, when we're taking the feedback, that's probably helping us, you know, converge enough that we're making whatever result we're producing useful. This is kind of a question in left field. Um, uniqueness. And then I think about like, in po- like you're, you have a PhD in positive psychology, correct? Yep. So, and, and please correct me if I say something that's wrong, but signature strengths is such a big part in positive psychology, or at least through when what I'm learning, signature strengths and uniqueness. Is there like some sort of cross-sectional area here? Because it seems like your signature strengths can be what make you unique in the way that you do things. One piece, but I would also point out signature strengths change. I mean, something to keep in mind is that like, you know, the VIA model, which is a very good model of strengths, I should add, but one of the things about it is our signature strengths can change over the years. And, you know, part of that is that actually for those who are taking the VIA every so often, it's actually a neat little diary. And it's one of the things I've had some fun doing it, you know, is taking the VIA every so often and just seeing like how my results change over the years, like how my signature strengths change, how, you know, I was focusing on this strength, you know, 10 years ago and I'm focusing on this one now. But I would argue that, you know, something to, something to remember is that the VIA values in action, our signature strengths are the way in which we act upon our values. And so that's going to change depending on context, depending on our stage in life, depending on a whole lot of things. So it might be one indicator of uniqueness. And certainly, you know, whatever combination of signature strengths we get, that is certainly a an indicator of our uniqueness. It's not the whole thing, of course, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, it gives us it gives us a, a view into it. And it's often a good way to just take a quick look. Like, where am I at? What kind of combination am I am I showing these days? So sure. Cool. Okay, I'm gonna move on a little bit because some people have submitted amazing questions. I'm gonna talk about I w- I'd like to talk about individual flow for just a couple more minutes. And then I have a ton of questions from people in my class actually about team flow, which I know that you're also an expert on that. You briefly talked about the difference between flow and and mindfulness and meditation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Sure. So uh, what do I point out? First of all, mindfulness and meditation are really, really, really broad items. <laughs> so meditation covers an incredible range of deeply focused uh, states and experiences of many different kinds. Mindfulness also, I will point out, and again, I want to get too much into this, but mindfulness at its core, you know, is, you know, comes uh, from Southeast Asia and like, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, this is something very, very specific, and it's been taken out of context often in the Western world, and it's been taken out of its um, religious and spiritual contexts. Uh, and people are talking about mindfulness now separate from the religious and spiritual context, which I would argue you really should not be doing at all. Hmm. And like, if you if you want to talk about a, a form of attentional meditation, go ahead and do that. But mindfulness, sati, is like, that's that's something unique and one type of meditation. But for each of these things, it's got fewer pieces to it than flow. And part, and part of that is deliberately so. Like the, the entire point of many different kinds of meditations is to zoom in on one particular feature or aspect or thought or pattern. And it's not really so out, outside of that one thing. It's not necessarily so goal directed. It's. I mean, we can have flow experiences while engaging in meditation, but it's not very likely. And meditation is not always something that we're doing for intrinsic motivation. Meditation is often uh, an exercise. It's something that we're doing. It's a spiritual thing. It does bring us to great heights, but I wouldn't necessarily want to conflate a spiritual height with the height of a flow experience. They're very separate things and they give us they're both ineffable experiences, but different kinds. And getting a spiritual high is not the same as getting that experiential high from a flow uh, from a flow experience, flow activity. It seems like you know secularized meditation. People are trying to improve their sense of attention and focus and emotional regulation. It seems like if you have done some sort of attentional training, we'll call it that, then you might be, it might be easier for you to experience flow states because the level of distraction whenever you're doing something might not be as prevalent. Possibly. I don't think anybody's proven that yet. It's, it's not something I could gainsay. I'll say that much. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I could gainsay that, but I, I don't think I've seen that proven yet. Mm-hmm. But I mean, listen, when we're doing that emotional and cognitive weightlifting, which is how I, I think of it as, you know, emotional and cognitive weightlifting, I mean, certainly that adds to our capacity to focus and it adds to our capacity to remove distractions and to step away from distractions and to keep them out. So it certainly would make us better at doing what's necessary to experience flow. It certainly can't hurt. But uh, a lot of the work, uh, like I'm thinking about Dwight Sill's work on uh, autotelic personality. And I think that, you know, looking at that, developing that, cultivating that may turn out to be a lot more important than, you know, that cognitive and emotional weightlifting, mm-hmm. although I'm sure it's related. It's developing the it's developing into the kind of person that can convert activities into being something that they like to do for their own sake. Mm-hmm. And I, not necessarily the best definition of autotelic personality, but I'll, I'll leave that one for Dwight. I'm going to add in one more question here, which yeah, is cool. a question. So- when you're doing something for its own sake, I, d- I don't know if I understand this because if you're doing something for its own sake, you're still experiencing emotions around it. So 
like, are you actually doing it for its own sake? Or are you doing it because it makes you feel good? Like, what's the difference there? So I would argue it's why it makes you feel good. So for instance, if you're doing something because you get a pat on the head, you're not doing it for its own sake. You feel good about it because you get a pat on the head or you give yourself a pat on the head or you get a reminder of a pat on the head or something like that. Whereas, you know, when you're doing an activity for its own sake, you're doing it because you want to engage in the act. So, for example, if you if you are uh, cycling for its own sake, it's because you want to be cycling. You just want to be cycling. And it's not for this part of what we're saying about being divorced from the outcome. It's not about necessarily the rewards or the benefits or whatever else you like the act of cycling, the experience of cycling, the feel of cycling, and what you're doing when you cycle, not necessarily the outcome. And so, you know, if your good feelings, for example, are coming from the outcome of it, that's not necessarily uh, doing something for its own sake. Does that, does that cover the question? I'm, I'm smiling because I, I don't think it's you can ever separate it. Like if you have ever received external feedback that made you feel good, that's going to be tied into it forever whenever you're doing the activity, like it, it, even if it's subconscious. I'm not sure you're correct about that, actually. Hmm. In some cases, extrinsic motivation may lead us into something, but we can develop our own reasons and those become those become the dominant. And if you want to make the argument that it's never going to be 100%, it's only 99 I can't gainsay that either. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is that when, when we're getting to a point where all the motivation we're really recognizing is how much we love engaging in the activity, then even if there is a piece that is somewhat extrinsic, if that's not being noticed, I would argue that functionally, mm. functionally, it's intrinsic motivation. I, I, I think I would agree with you if you were if you were to counter that by saying there's nothing that's 100% intrinsic. Yeah, probably true. But I would say that there are things that are close enough uh, that it's functionally intrinsic. So it's like the in- the intent matters more than yeah. like what's what's like subconsciously happening. Yeah. Also, I'm a little fuzzy on the subconscious point. But okay. <laughs> okay. The last one on individual flow is flow. Someone asked, "What's the difference between flow and peak experiences?" Well, that's a tough one. Um, so I think. <laughs> You know, looking at, let's say, Privet's work on peak experience or, you know, what Maslow was talking about as peak experiences. There's like, there's, if we took them as a Venn diagram, there's a whole, there's a lot of overlap between those two. What I would argue is that, for instance, when we were talking about spiritual highs, those can also be peak experiences that may not be a flow experience. So I would say that our peak experiences, they are the highs that we get in life. So for example, a lot of people when they're in relationships, they get certain peak experiences in those relationships, really, really deep, profound moments of friendship or people in romantic relationships that have profound moments of love or joy. Uh, Parents, you know, often talk about like peak moments of parenting. Those are very separate from flow. They are peak experiences, but they're peak experiences, you know, more that are, you know, momentary things or, you know, experiential things that are not necessarily about the effort you're putting in in the moment, but maybe a function of a whole lot of other, uh, a confluence of a whole lot of other contextual factors all at the same time. And sometimes they may even be related to, let's say, you know, moments, for instance, um, weddings. Like, why are weddings such peak experiences, especially for, you know, the, the two getting married? 
it's it's quite the experience for them and many of them it's a it's a very deep and profound experience for them it is it is a peak experience for them not necessarily flow but in part because it's not necessarily challenging or that they're putting forth this high skill effort but it is still a profound moment in their lives or let's say a moment when you've just gotten a realization about the way the world works that it just totally changes your perspective on everything it is a peak experience i would argue and it's something that where we feel our our greatest level of humanity in part because our uniqueness is being activated in that moment and that because the uniqueness is being activated in the peak experiences and the flow experiences and so on i think that there's a lot of overlap there but we can have i think i think that our uniqueness is related to the peak experiences and some and also in the flow experiences but so the flow experiences require more effort activity the goal and the feedback the challenge the skill the intrinsic motivation whereas we do have peak experiences that build on our uniqueness that may not necessarily be effortful for example people getting married they're not necessarily putting effort in that moment of peak experience but gosh uh, i think almost every uh, i think almost every couple in love you know has memories of that peak experience of getting married somebody said how can you cultivate more flow in your daily life and i i kind of think that you can't cultivate it in your daily life is that is that an accurate thing that i said or not i don't think so but i understand why you say it but i don't think it's correct i actually do think that you can cultivate flow in daily life but what i would point out is it's still going to be limited because flow experiences what we need to do to have flow experiences requires a lot of energy we have to put a it takes a lot of energy to hit a flow experience and to be in one and to maintain one you're not going to be able to hold that for very long mhm so you might be able to to do this you know depending on the length of the experience you know maybe a few hours a day and again i want to prescribe like you know upper and lower <laughs> limits on any of this yeah. but i do think that you know depending on the context depending on you know what control we have over our lives things like that it is possible to experience flow every day that doesn't mean everybody can or will or does but it's possible i think part of it would be first of all making sure that we're taking care of ourselves mentally physically emotionally spiritually spiritually writ large here if if we're taking care of ourselves that's first second i would say if we're making sure that we're choosing our activities carefully and we are of course setting aside time and context we do see that you know we do need a context that is conducive to flow so are we able to set up that context a situation let's say where we can focus or a situation where we're able to apply our best selves where we've got the energy to do it when we're able to clear our heads and you know get into the activity an activity being able to find activities that we're intrinsically motivated to do and so on so it is mm-hmm. possible likely i don't know too many people who experience full every day it's it's a big ask and it's a big challenge mm-hmm. i do find a lot of people that experience engagement every day mhm well i think that we've colored a, a huge um beautiful picture for people to understand a lot more about flow and the nuances around it so let's move into team flow How do you define team flow and how does one facilitate it? 
if they can at all. <laughs> so there's there's so much to say about team flow. And I want to point out that um, the world's leading expert on this one is Jeff Bonsenhaus. And he is uh-huh. my co-author on a lot of these things. And I, I think uh-huh. we're going to be talking to Jeff at some point. Yeah, um, he, yeah, he's going to come on. So I, I, I do want to leave some I do want to leave uh, some questions for him, especially because he is he is the world's leading expert on team flow. I joke that Jeff is the captain, I'm the co-pilot, but he is the captain and he's the one, he's the he's the great expert on this. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll I'll let him define the the team flow there. What I would say is that it's a it's a it's a higher order experience in which every team member is experiencing flow, and then there's the higher order experience of the team as a unit experiencing flow, which they're all deriving from the team's dynamic. And that is that is intentionally a broad definition because I know that Jeff is going to get into the intricacies and uh, um and he'll and he'll do it better than I will. So, if you can't cultivate like you cannot trigger flow, how do you get everybody on the team to have team flow because you cannot trigger that experience? So rather than thinking about triggering the experience, there's a whole lot of factors that go into this. And Jeff and I have been looking at uh, we've been looking at team flow together for over over a decade now and we found a whole lot of pitfalls that teams fall into and then a whole lot of things that people should be doing and the first thing and the most important thing is the team needs to be cultivated deliberately and that's often error number one and and the most common error we see we see as to why teams can't experience team flow is because the team's not cultivated intentionally they just throw people together haphazardly they don't think about why they're there so you got to bring people together where everybody knows why they're there and everybody knows why they've been brought in. And there's a complementarity of skill sets and abilities and you know desires to do activities. So the team is convening with a reason. Everybody knows why they're there. Everybody knows how they can and will be able to contribute. And everybody's got individual challenges. The team has challenges. There's feedback to ensure that every individual knows that they're doing it right and that the team knows that they're doing it right. And again, this also comes into the team's dynamic. So some of the feedback is coming from the activity, but some of the feedback is coming from the team and the development of the higher order product the team is putting together. And so as we put these things together, we can we can start to build this foundation for team flow in which you can emerge. And team flow is an emerging experience, just like individual flow. And so, no, we can't trigger it, but we can certainly put the right elements in there. We also need to make sure that there is trust. People trust one another, that there's good communication. And each of these things can be facilitated and developed. And so Team Glow is being higher order and being such an incredible experience. It's harder to get to than the individual flow. And you are dependent upon other people. And there's, there's actually an interdependence that happens for Team Flow. And building that interdependence comes with, you know, the, the reason why the team is brought together, the collective ambition of the team, uh, why everybody's there, the high skill integration, as we call it, that, that uh, people have the complementarity of skills they're putting, that they're putting in. Each of these pieces helps enable team flow to emerge. And like, what are the benefits of team flow versus individual flow? I mean, team flow is, in many cases, it's many of the benefits of individual flow extended to the team level. So the team often Mm -hmm. feels a sense of joint progress and accomplishment. So we're all feeling it together. And we feel like it's something we all made as a team. And it actually makes the team want to come together again. And it really also cements a bond, you know, something amazing that we've all done together. 
And there's something amazing is often the experience that we built. I mean, again, in many cases, it's divorced from the outcome. Now, the outcome is almost always better, but that's correlation, correlation, not being causation. Mm-hmm. We still have the feeling that we did something amazing together. We feel a camaraderie and mm-hmm. that togetherness, that sense of unity that we all feel is, again, like a peak experience, so to speak. And that has that, you know, again, ineffability to it. And it makes us want to convene again. We feel like we did well together. And it's an experience you never forget. And I'm assuming this has to be done in person. Like it, 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 being like on Zoom all together working, for example, probably isn't as effective as being in person. I know that there are some people who think that it is, but I'm with you on this. I, I think uh, team flow is not likely to occur in these situations. Certainly what I will say, what I will say is, I don't believe team flow is possible with a bunch of folks who've never met before mm-hmm. in person. You have to have those in-person interactions in order to build the trust, in order to build the communication patterns and so on. And what I would point out is part of the reason why remote teams are unlikely to be able to experience team flow is because the communication is limited and the ability to observe one another is limited. The ability to give feedback is limited. When we're not, uh, unless and until we can get to a point where you and I can see holographic projections of each other in the space where I can see everything you're doing, you can see everything I'm doing, and we can see one another completely, something's going to be missing in the communication. And it's harder to build that trust remotely. It's harder to build free willing interactions. I mean, just, just to give you an example, there's so many situations on you know, Zoom or other teams or other chat features where people end up talking over one another because there's sometimes delays in the conversation. We're also missing all the hand gestures, the the body language. You're only seeing somebody from like the shoulders up most of the time. So just for instance, I've, I've been gesturing with my hands through almost this entire conversation. I have no idea, you know, how much of it really got onto the camera. I know, I know for a fact that some of it is below the level of the camera. And so I make a whole lot of hand gestures and you're you're missing it. The whole audience is missing it. Can't see your Christmas jammies. Can't see my <laughs> oh, I'm Jewish, so oh, there are no Christmas <laughs> jammies. But yeah. But yeah, so but I'm saying, like, you know, and nobody nobody can see that. Also, I, I definitely recommend, you know, wear pants. Uh <laughs> but or, or or at least a a, a pants, skirt, whatever, appropriate bottom. But uh yeah. So um we're not seeing all that. And consequently, it makes the communication, the feedback a lot harder. So I very much push back when people like to say, oh, remote teams are just as good. No, they're not. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's a pretense that we want to have. And I'm not saying that remote teams can't perform adequately. Certainly they can. But at the highest levels, no. Yeah, it seems like to have a remote team that performs well, or maybe... If you've developed in-person trust and connection already as a team, then you might perform better digitally than you would otherwise, like if you haven't met in person and developed those relationships. So I think that once you have the trust and the communication and the feedback and you know the team really the, the team members really know one another, then you might be able to go remote. But I think that that's not something that you can build. I, you know, I, I see, I see organizations say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, we'll do two days of team building exercises, and then we're going to be fine." No, you won't. You're not getting to peak performance. You're not getting to team flow like that. So it sounds like trust is a really big part of of team flow. From what you said, is that, so how how do you build trust in an organization? 
Well, that's a tough one, but um, it's a, it's also a big one. But how do we build trust in organizations? So I think part of it is we need to be able to get to know folks and we need to be able to make ourselves known to other people and feel that it's safe to do that. And part of the part of the challenge of trust, and this is, uh, again, I'm not a, a leading expert on trust, but from what I know of it, I would I would argue that part of the problem with trust is it almost always requires somebody to take chances first. We have to venture trust and then, you know, see what works out. And so you often need people who are brave enough to venture things and see what happens there. And so part of that is we need to see the outcome of those ventures, not only in the short term, but in the long term. Trust is built over time. And there, and there are levels of trust. So, I mean, you know, at first we venture something small and that works out. And so that cements some trust and then some higher trust and some higher trust and some higher trust. But when we're talking about getting teams, you know, to team flow levels, we're talking about a pretty strong sense of trust, a trust that when you say, I'm going to X, you're going to do it. And that you're going to handle that effectively and that you're going to be responsible and that you're going to do your best and that you don't have some, you know, alternative motivations that we don't know about, hidden agendas. And by the way, hidden agendas are, are one of those things that can totally sink a team and often are one of the underminers of trust. We need to be able to ensure that we really do know what everybody wants. And part of the problem is that in the workplace, we put people on teams, but we don't always align the incentives for the people on the team. We often, and we're not always aligning all the motivations. And in some cases we're having situations where people have misaligned incentives or team members have misaligned incentives and that that can very much ruin the trust and in some cases make it impossible to trust somebody because if they can't reveal their their motivations and their incentives and so on and especially if you sense that it's there it's hard to trust people on your team and and therefore it's hard to perform so, so companies kind of need to think about how that's all going. Also, again, how companies handle failure, how companies handle mistakes. These things also really undermine the trust. And I've, I've seen a lot in companies where a manager or, or a, a CEO or a board or a C-suite, whatever it is, can be over emphatic about failure being a bad thing or somebody can screw something up and it becomes disastrous. And everybody sees that and that weakens everybody else's trust. So it's something that people miss is that, you know, when when somebody screws up on something and they get the axe, everybody's watching that. Everybody learns from that. Somebody screws up and they get berated by a manager and so on. Everybody's watching, everybody's learning, and everybody's losing trust. And but at the same time, I mean, I wanna I wanna hit the flip side of that. You know, as a manager, you're responsible for the results of your team. That's high pressure. And as a CEO, you're responsible for the results of the company. That's high pressure. And so, like, you know, I just want to point out that this is not arbitrary. This isn't bad. And this pressure isn't coming from nowhere. That It's it's very justified and understandable. Yeah, it's really complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, oh, this is yeah. tough one because it's tough. That's good, I though. Mean, and, and the thing is, these these misalignments often get in the way and sometimes they become irreconcilable 
Yeah. It also sounds like, you know, you're talking about feedback, the importance of feedback for flow experiences and the management in a team setting, or even to one another, there is feedback that has to be given and done in a certain way that can erode trust or that can further build it. Absolutely. Yes. And feedback systems, performance management. Yeah. You and I could talk for an hour on that. It's (laughs) something something that's been, uh, for lack of a better term, performance management has been keeping me up at night lately. Um, And I've been thinking a lot about how we're doing that very badly. And part of that is because we're getting a little too results oriented and not enough process oriented. And we're focusing more on, you know, good results, not good process. And it's funny, it it brings me to mind, uh, this is going to sound like a funny story, but um, when I was a freshman uh, at Brandeis, uh, I took a physics course, I took uh, an exam in physics. Did rather poorly on one of the questions and the professor gave me only half credit and uh, partly because I got the answer wrong. And I met with the professor afterwards and I asked him what was going on. And I told him, like, we we're discussing, I said, you could see that I set this up correctly. I obviously knew what I was doing. And what he said to me was, but did you analyze your answer? What do you mean? Did you check your answer? Did you see if your answer was right? And I'm sort of looking at him and he says, give me a unit analysis on your answer. Is it like, what, what unit should the answer be? And I said, in meters per second. He said, look at your answer. Is that in meters per second? No. And he said, and that is why you got half credit on the question. Because you should have known, even though you set it up right, you should have known that you did something wrong in the middle. You should have known that your process was wrong somewhere in the middle by analyzing your answer. And it's the fact that it's not the fact that your answer was wrong. If it was just that your answer was wrong, it would have taken off just a couple of points. It's that your failure to analyze your answer and to double check it tells me that you did something wrong in your process. Your process was bad and you didn't think this through like a physicist. Therefore, you're losing half credit on this. I said, understood, professor. Have a nice day. Not, not exactly in those terms. But and and by the way, it was a great lesson. As you can imagine, freshman year for me was 23 years ago. And I still remember that lesson from Professor Cantor. May rest in peace. And like it was a great lesson. That you know, sometimes it's the you know, sometimes the a bad answer comes from bad process. And you know, when you look at your answer, you can see that your process didn't get you there, even if you started in the right spot. And, but we're focusing only, and, and that was my error, is I was focusing only on the answer. Like, so what? The answer was wrong. Whatever. <laughs> and he was saying, sometimes bad answer, bad process. If it had been the only the answer, like if I if I'd done it everything up to everything up to the like the the up to the answer and just got the answer wrong, okay, fine. But but that's the thing. We're thinking more about answers than we are about processes, and that's one of our issues in feedback and performance management and all the rest of that stuff. We're only focusing on, did you get the right outcome, not how did you get there? But in some cases, by the way, it's the opposite. We're focusing only on how people got there. Sometimes all is well that ends well. And I'm finding that in business, we're, we're finding a lot of managers, a lot of bosses who don't have that discretion to know when to just say all's well that ends well. And even if it ended well, this was a bad process. And Maybe this ended badly, but the process was good, so that's okay. And sometimes this was a bad ending, and that implies the process was bad. Each of these scenarios, we're not seeing that people have the discretion on. That is such an important point. And the metaphor that you gave, well, it was a real story, but also a metaphor. 
And then also for you to go back to your instructor and say, Hey, like, can you tell me why I didn't get the the points that I think I maybe deserve for this? And that he could give you an answer that made sense to you. Cause I, I think that when people, some people actually want feedback on why something didn't go well, and then they don't get an answer so that they can improve upon that. And that can be another challenge. Well, I would point out that I had been trained by then by you know teachers in high school to seek out the answers that way, not to necessarily be seeking only points, but to be seeking like, what did I do wrong? And mm-hmm. that was that that took a number of, uh, I will say, hard hitting lessons from some very, very good teachers in school. But not everybody gets those hard hitting lessons. And I've been finding, you know, now in my days as a professor, many of my students have not had those hard hitting lessons. They're just looking for points. They're looking for answers. And I think that that's something that many of us may be doing by default. We may need to be trained out of it. I I was fortunate that I was, and I will say it was not a pleasant experience. But I think for many of us, we have to train ourselves out of that to to look again at process and what we do and to decide when is the outcome the most important thing and when is it not. And I mean, not saying I didn't care about my grades. I very much did. But... I also wanted to make sure that I was doing a good job. And in this case, you know, I hadn't done as well of a job as I should have. This might be in the weeds for people, but I still want to ask it because you are a professor. So my background is I have my master's degree in electrical engineering where there is lots of right answers and there are lots of wrong answers. But now I'm in psychology where you write a paper and then you get like a subjective grade. And I've actually gone back and been not trying to get points, but just trying to understand like, well, why didn't I get, you know, where where were the points taken off here so that I can improve my process? But then no good feedback was given on how to improve the process. So like subjectively, how do you give better feedback if there is no right, quote, right answer? So here's the way I explain it is that, and I would argue even in electrical engineering, the higher level you go in any field, it stops being about the right answer and the wrong answer and becomes being more about a more defensible answer and a less defensible yeah. answer. <laughs> an answer that's, that makes more sense, an answer that holds together better, an answer that does not hold well, uh, that, that does not hold its own water. So things that are more parsimonious, things that are less parsimonious, and that that's more how we're evaluating the answer. Okay, that makes so much sense. Okay, well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Um, is there anything else that you want people to know about Flow before we sign off? I think you know something that Csikszentmihalyi used to emphasize was the fact that Flow is for everyone, and that you know people often look at their circumstances or may look at their context and say Flow is impossible for me here. And I think Csikszentmihalyi was very emphatic about the fact that anyone, anyone, anywhere doesn't matter who they are or what the circumstances of their life are. Anyone can have a flow experience. Anyone can get there. It's not, it it doesn't matter what country you're in, whether you're in a developing country or a developed country, you're rich, you're poor, you're this, you're that, whatever it is, flows for everyone. And it's something that everyone can develop and experience and something that can be encouraged in everyone. And I think that I think that often one of the things that we often miss when we're talking, when we're getting into these weeds about like, how do we find more flow every day and all the rest of that stuff, we forget that flow is for everyone. And that it is it is and can be a universally known experience. And the research really does show all of this, that, that flow is experienced widely and can be experienced anywhere and by anyone. And I think when we get in the weeds of this, we, we often forget that like, 
it is, even if it is a great ineffable experience, it is something that's available to anyone. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And, and where can people find your work if they want to learn more? Sure, they can check out my website, uh, the Quality of Life Laboratory, uh, www.qllab.org. That's qllab.org. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Sonia. I hope you enjoyed that episode and you learned a lot about flow. As I said, flow is a pretty popularized term and a lot of people misuse it because they don't understand it. And it can be very confusing. So I really enjoyed having Dr. Oren Davis on the show. Every time I talk to him, I learn a lot more. I think something about learning is important to make comments where you know that you might be wrong, such as I did in the podcast multiple times over. Clarifying questions can deepen understanding. So that could be a little takeaway uh, aside from flow to practice in your own life. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to this podcast. I hope your new year is off to a phenomenal start. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.